Hunting is not easy. It never has been. It takes dedication, motivation, a lot of patience, and quality gear. If you manage a food plot, put up stands, or need just one more game camera, we can help at MidwayUSA.com. We opened our doors in 1977 and continue to put customers first by offering super fast, same day shipping. For just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. When it comes to hunting boots, how many pairs does one man need? Well, how many seasons are there? Turkey season? Deer season? Duck season? Dove season? Honey, how many pairs of boots does one man need? At least one more pair. For just about everything for hunting, go to MidwayUSA.com. I'm Larry Potterfield with Midway USA. Thanks for your business. Welcome to episode 122 of the Whitetail Extraction Podcast. My name's Austin, and as of tomorrow, October 1st, it is officially archery season in Pennsylvania. I couldn't be more excited. I'm going to be in a tree. It's going to be magical. I can't wait. I absolutely can't wait. This episode kind of falls right into it. I mean, we've had him on before. People have been asking for him. If you don't know who he is, you're living under a rock. It's John Eberhardt. I mean, the guy is a freaking legend. We talk about all kinds of stuff. We People have been asking for you know John to come back on. People have been asking for the Deer Slayer series, so it just seemed to fit. We kind of threw in like a little bit of you know BS session, but it was mainly like a Deer Slayer series podcast. And I couldn't be more happy about it. It was awesome. It's packed full of information, lots of joking, lots of stories, all kinds of fun stuff. You guys are going to love it. But before we get into it, I got to take care of business real quick. First and foremost, Scree Gear. Unreal stuff, guys. Go check them out. Sign up for their VIP deals. You can do the text messages. You can do the emails. They are constantly running sales on stuff. Go over, check them out. If you want to try before you buy, they do their 14-day money-back guarantee, their lifetime warranty. It's unreal. Me and Charles wear this stuff all the time. It's unbelievably comfortable. Keeps you out in the woods longer. I can't say enough good things about it. Second, VIP archery. We are both shooting combat vets this year. Maybe shoot some commanders. We got to get them in. And head over to their website. Check them out. There's so many good broadheads on their website, guys. I've been using them for years. Charles has been using them for years. We've shot countless deer with them. Freddy Krueger blood, guys. I mean, it's almost Halloween. Why not just do some Freddy Krueger blood? It's it's necessary. That's all I'm going to say. Check them out. And, you know, we third, third, and final. Final in manufacturing, Matt Garris. The dude is a freaking monster when it comes to, you know, the hanging hunt game. If you're going to get some tree stands, you want to get some climbing sticks, you want to get camera arms saddle platforms go over and check him out he's has like the best products when it comes to that stuff the price points right there just check him out trust me you're gonna love it and that guy runs sales too all the time it's awesome but if you do me one more favor head over to itunes or spotify or wherever you guys listen to podcasts and give us a five-star review or 4.9 or whatever you want to do if you got good feedback bad feedback shoot us a message on one of our you know social medias Send us an email, all that fun stuff. We'd love to hear from you guys. And if you guys shoot a deer or you kill an elk or shoot a turkey or anything, send us some pictures, guys. We'd love to talk to you. We love answering questions. Hit us up. We're always around. So that's out of the way. Let's get into the episode. Here's John Eberhardt, guys. 
Hey, I just got back from lunch. Did you finish that report yet? Uh, well, not exactly. I'm still working on it. I'm not finished just yet. Uh, I got a little sidetracked, but I will get them to you first thing this afternoon. <laughs> it is first thing this afternoon. Well, yeah, I, I understand that, but I mean, I, I am working on but it. I'll have, um, what do you mean that the report isn't finished yet? I'm, I'm still in the process of working on it. I've just been a little distracted. T distracted? Our meeting starts in an hour. Have it. You, you no no. What were you doing? Were you listening to another hunting podcast again? I swear, I give the staff in this office the freedom to do whatever they want to do as long as they meet a deadline. That is the first bullet underneath your job description. Pays attention to detail and deadline and deadline. Are you even listening to me right now? All right, guys, we are back with a return guest. And come on, if you don't know the name John Eberhart, I am not sure what you're doing ever listening to podcasts at this point because it just doesn't make sense. John <laughs> Eberhart, podcast, hunting, those three things should be in every household of every hunting family that's ever existed. Am I right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, man. I, I can't disagree one bit. So, John, we had you on so early in this show. I mean, I think it was like the top 10 episodes or something. I mean, it was very early. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. Like super early. It was. And I, I couldn't believe it back then. We were, you know, we're the same schoolgirls as we are, you know, then as we are now. But, man, I am so honored to have you back, John. It's been, you know, a long time, but we're always following up on what you're doing. You know, been to some of your events. It's, it's phenomenal. How's it going tonight, man? How are you? Uh, like I mentioned earlier, it's better than it should be. I'm uh, retiring at the end of the year and uh, things are really well. I'm still going to do my uh, YouTube videos and I'm still going to do my whitetail workshops. I'm still going to write articles. Uh, I'm still going to hunt as hard as I can, even though I'm only shooting 40 pounds right now. And I'm, because I'm 72 years old and I've got arthritis, but I feel, I feel great. Other than my shoulders, uh, life is really, really good. That is fantastic to hear, my man. We are so happy you came on, and I think uh, I think this is going to be a pretty good one. We're going to get into some fun stuff here. Yeah, no doubt. By the way, you look great, John, as well. Just to, just to throw that out there, a little compliment. You do. You look good. You do. Like well, you I've said, heard, I, I I've couldn't believe. <laughs> you, you throw that number out there, and I'm like, holy, man, you don't look a day over 40, 45. <laughs> <laughs> well, I told you we were schoolgirls. When you, when you, uh, when you work at hunting as hard as I do, because everything's public and, you know, free permission, private properties, uh, I've only got two pro private properties that I hunt and everything else is public. You just got to work hard. So I work out all year to stay in shape for hunting and prepping locations and climbing trees. And, um, you know, if you don't work out and you just can't, I just can't do what I could do if I didn't stay in shape. Let's put it that way. I guess. Definitely. Yeah, I mean, especially with the mobile game, hunting mobile, uh, climbing every single set that you do, you're up, you're coming back down, taking down. I mean, everything that you do, I know, you know, on us as 30-year-olds, you know, um, just young 30-year-olds, we, I get beat up. At the end of the year, after doing that, day after day after day, morning, evening, you get beat up. I mean, your body just, it, it doesn't take it well if you're not ready for it. That's right. That's absolutely, you only get into it what you put it. You know, you only get out of it what you put into it, just like anything. That's else. right. Yep. 
So I guess if anybody is listening to this and they don't know who you are, John, why don't you do your, your quick intro for us and just let everyone know who you are, where you're from. Sure. Okay. Uh, John Eberhardt, I am from Michigan. I've been bow hunting for 55 years. I've got 53 book bucks, uh, 33 from Michigan, the other 20 are from out of state. Uh, I've only been out of state three times where I did not kill a book buck, and those are one week hunts. I go out of state during Michigan's gun season to continue bow hunting. I do not gun hunt. Um, everything I do is public land and knock on doors for free permission properties. Um, and I just work really, really hard at bow hunting. I'm a writer. I've written three bow hunting books. I have a YouTube channel, Eberhard Outdoors. Uh, I do whitetail workshops in the spring. They're two-day events. I write for deer and deer hunting. I write for, used to write for a lot of national magazines. I've kind of skinny bent down a little bit. And uh, I just love bow hunting, man. It's, it's, it's absolutely 100% my passion. Well, I mean, with that resume, I guess it's safe to say you got tons of free time, right? Oh, I got all kinds of free time. <laughs> <laughs> right now, I'm answering about 20 to 30 email questions a day on general hunting questions and I like I mentioned to you guys I, I've sent out a lot of scent control stuff because I'm a big scent lock scent control guy I don't pay attention to wind and um, you know and I'm filming all my own YouTube videos and editing them myself so I'm, I'm kind of a one man one man show so I, I yeah, stay busy no, I'm, re I'm retiring from my regular job I'm a sales rep I have been since 1992 in the hunting industry um, and I'm retiring from that job at the end of this year. Uh, and I'll, then I'll just focus on, you know, tethered and uh, my YouTube and my workshops and stuff like that, which is going to be a lot. Oh yeah. That, that's got to feel good too. being, the, you know, you're right at that time. Now you can freaking retire and just kind of uh, do what you want. Right. I mean, that's got to feel good. I've always got a smile on my face anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, if you talk to most retired people out there, they'll tell you they have less time after retirement than they did before. It just seems like yeah. one thing after another, you know, because you're going to have to replace that with something. So like you said, you're going to pick up another hobby or something, you know, either <laughs> I'm sure something well, else is going to come down. You're just, you don't seem like the type of person that's going to sit back and relax. No, <laughs> well, the workshops take a lot. I do seminars. I write and uh, yeah. uh, YouTube. The YouTube thing takes a lot of time. And, oh, yeah. I mean, you're videoing your own stuff. I don't video kills, but I, I video instructional stuff to help people who are not a bowman. You know, there's plenty of kills on TV by guys that don't know what the hell they're doing because TV guys on Zoo like stuff. Um, but I do everything the hard way and I like to put that information out there for public land hunters. Uh, in, shorten their learning curve so yeah i'm going to continue doing that i'll just be doing more of that once i retire from this job i'll have more free time to do more there you go it's awesome looking forward to it honestly Heck yeah i know we talked about it a little bit before we hit the record button but i went down to one of your workshops that you had here in pittsburgh a couple mm -hmm. years back and i'll tell you what even then at that point i mean i'm, I'm very still very new into saddle hunting i think this is fourth or fifth season fourth or fifth season doing yeah. this but you know i i gained a lot from it there was a lot of little tips, a lot of little tactics, just watching kind of your setup because everybody does it a little different, yes. right? But a guy like you that's had, you know, 30 plus now, right? 40 years almost, I would uh, bet. Saddle hunting for 40. This will be my 42nd 
season. Not 42nd year. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, someone like you, that's been in a saddle for 42 years, if, you know, if you're not open-minded to gain information from you, I mean, it's, that's invaluable information in, in all reality. So I, I gained a lot. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. 47 of my book books have came up from a saddle. So there you so, go. <laughs> yeah, the saddle thing is ingrained in me. Uh, yeah. I, when I first bought a saddle, I didn't know what the hell it was. Nobody knew what it was. It was just a bunch of straps on a you know, plastic bag. And I could just see by the picture on there that it was going to be something that I could move around the tree. It was something I could keep in my backpack. I didn't have long tree stands. Nobody's going to steal it. It was safe. And, you know, I'm always a forward thinker. So even though it was very awkward when I first bought it and took it out of the package, because there was nothing, there was no YouTube. I just had to figure it out myself. Um, I could just see the advantages of it. And anytime I can see the, the long-term advantages of something, I go with it and I try to modify it and perfect it. Just like with Sunlock. You know, Scentlock first two years were kind of discovering how to properly care for it, how to properly store it, how to properly use it, what to use in conjunction with it. And once I figured all that stuff out, like into my third year using Scentlock, I don't pay attention to wind. But I just knew even during the learning process, when you, if I could get rid of, rid of 70% of my human order, you know, it was still going to be a perk. It was still going to be a plus. Did I ever think it was going to get to the point where I didn't have to pay attention to wind whatsoever? No, I never, ever thought that because I owned 35 years paying attention to wind 100%. So I never mm -hmm. thought it was possible. But once that happened, for the last 21 years, I've paid zero attention to wind direction. And I yeah. never get windy. So, but I saw the long-term perks of what it would do, um, even though it didn't do the full 199 to 100% initially. It took two, three years for me to get to that point. But once I got there, I mean, I, I never looked back. And people that don't take advantage of scent control, they're way behind in the game. I mean, to not take advantage of the technology that's out there, in my opinion, is ridiculously sinful. <laughs> I mean, people spend money on, <laughs> way more money on certain clothing manufacturers than they should. And Scentlock is usually about half the price of what some of these other hunting manufacturers are that have zero technology. And with Scentlock, if you do it all right, you don't have to pay attention to win. Yet people, I, I, I'm just shocked so few people do. But I'll get off that, that train for, for this podcast. <laughs> it's a train yeah, to me because yeah. it's such a big I like juggernaut. It. It's such a big juggernaut in bow hunting. I mean, when you can not pay attention to wind direction, that is a, that's the biggest game changer you can have in bowling, period. End of discussion. Yeah. Yeah. I would love to see somebody with a 10, 10 to 12 rows deep <laughs> into the corn. <laughs> well, and my, my point with that field. was, good luck. My point was that was, and I don't know if it was on that video or not, you know, if I were carrying a tree stand, walking yeah. through standing corn, even though I'm going down the corn rows. You know, it's but it's catching on everything, and you're just cussing and swearing, and you know, so sweating and anything like that when you're carrying a tree stand and you got your bow and your backpack and and sticks. You know, the tree stand just makes it much more difficult because it hangs up on everything because it's such a big frame and clumsy. So I, I mentioned yeah. that oh, while yeah. I was walking down the corn road. That's funny. That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be on my YouTube this Thursday night. I think it's posted 6.30 or 7 on Thursday. 
Awesome. I'll have to link that in there. Yeah, there you go. Hey, John, I actually brought up a good question because uh, you are the scent guy. So I'm, I'm curious, what do you do for your cell cams and your trail cameras to uh, keep them scent free? I'm guessing you do some kind of scent regimen on those it's, as well. It's just pretty, it's pretty simple. I just wipe them down with scent free wipes. And then once okay. I do that, when I do my speed tours and I'm putting out cameras, I'm totally flat in cell. So I've got my Scentlock suit on. I've got my Scentlock gloves on. I've got rubber boots on. I've got a clean Scentlock backpack. And then my cameras are in the backpack. And then when I, before I put the cameras in the backpack, and the backpack is clean, obviously, I wipe them down with scent-free wipes, even the solar panels. So, and then I'm only handling them with my Scentlock gloves. And then I usually don't put them at eye level. I also take a tethered one stick with two-step aiders on it. So I'm putting these cameras up above 12 to 14 feet and then pointing them down at a runway or some sort of a destination spot under an apple tree or under an oak tree uh, so that they're not in a peripheral vision where a buck can see them. You know, you don't get any of that deer looking at the camera kind of deal because mature bucks in a state like Michigan or some public land where you guys are at, they'll spook them out. You know, that a mature buck a lot of times won't come back to that location if he visually sees sees a camera he'll come back but it won't be during daylight hours unless he's with yeah him. it's funny that you mentioned that for the deer I, I i actually do the same thing i hang mine up with a stick and i do it just because i got tired of cameras getting stolen <laughs> yeah yeah yep i totally agree and i think i, I mentioned I, that to you guys because i'm yep. the two i only have two pieces of private with free permission and I hunt with other guys on that as well and on those i have cell cameras but i will never put a cell camera public because yeah half of the time they get I'll, I'll lose two or three cameras this year so the ones i have on public are all just you got to check the sd cards yeah that's the way i am too yeah i i do agree with hanging them up high i love to do that i i climb with a one stick method so i have it on oh, me pretty wow. much all the time anyways so it's nice because it has that aider on it i can put it up i can get my feet to like six seven feet hang that camera up and then, well, I mean, I have literally seen deer walk past. They never look at it. They where, the yep, they never look at it. Now, where I was in a hurry this year and I hung one up about normal level, I just got a picture today. The deer's <laughs> eyeball, it's licking my camera. <laughs> the eyeball is right in my camera frame and it's a cell cam too. And it's just staring right. I put it on a, a group of tree, like right up, almost hovering over top of a little drainage, creek drainage, like crossing. Yeah. And I never would have thought they walk right up and down that drainage constantly. And she came by and pretty much licked my camera this, uh, this afternoon. So, um, but it seems that at least the does aren't getting spooked by, it, but you know, they know it's there. Yeah. I've had so many deer just stop and look at it and you can see they're doing their head bob at it. I mean, they know it's there. Yep. Um, but I hope it doesn't, you know, cost me a deer down the line because it could is it, just is it be at in, a hunting, is it at a hunting location or is it just on a transition? It's not, location? it's on a transition just outside of my hunting location. So I put it there to just kind of see what's going through. It's a, it's a location I want to hunt, but I, I'm not sure what's going through there yet. So I kind of put it up to collect data. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yep. Yeah. Well, those are really curious. Bucks, yeah. bucks are not that curious. They see something that doesn't, that looks out of place. They turn around and leave. Yeah. Luckily so, the only good buck I've had, he's been about 20 yards away and he's crossed like they're supposed to. 
and he yeah. hasn't noticed it yet. So he's crossed about three times. <laughs> and I got to put a caveat on there because, you know, what you're talking about and what I'm talking about is pressured areas. You know, yeah. if, you know, if you watch the TV guys, they can do anything they want on their ultra managed property. It doesn't matter. They could probably walk in a bedding area and put one over 10 yards from the deer's bed and it wouldn't bother them. So, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm being a little facetious here, but I'm just making a point that in pressured areas, things matter. Whereas in managed areas, you can get away with a lot of things. It doesn't make any difference because the deer don't get shot at until they're four or five years old. So they're not right. that afraid of human intrusions or human order. Oh, yeah. They don't get shot at here until they're like four or five months old. I just got done hunting a little bit of public land up in uh, our early season regulation area comes in two weeks before our regular season. So our statewide season opens up this Saturday, but our special regulation near Pittsburgh has been open for two months or two weeks now. I'm sorry. And I was just down there last night and I, I ended up actually harvesting two dough, which was pretty cool. But I'll tell you what, just from the last time I was in there to this time and then seeing some of the other people, what they do, I, I, I've become more consistently successful there on doe because that's what I'm targeting. Just staying away from the other people. I found a pocket where nobody goes and I was talking to a kid in the parking lot last night about it. And I didn't tell him exactly where I was, of course. I mean, right. we might have to get into etiquette a little later on <laughs> yeah. as we kind of preluded uh, before we hit record. But, you know, I kind of told him, I said, look, everybody parks here. They all walk this way. I said, you yeah, know, that's why I go 100 yards this way. And I shoot deer <laughs> all the time. You know, I see deer all the time. I should say I don't shoot deer all the time. But I've the last couple of years, I've been pretty successful down there. Pretty so close to the parking area. Yeah. That's yeah. it. And I was walking out last night, right at dusk. Don't you know there was a deer about 20 yards from everyone's truck feeding? <laughs> Just standing right there. <laughs> oh, yeah. If you got the security cover and they're not molested, they'll bed wherever they're not molested. Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Just a little, little two-year-old doe. Yeah. But, you know, it just it just goes to show that if you find those little pockets away from people in an impression area, you're still gonna have to do a lot of work to find the bucks. But man, you can definitely scoring some does if that's all you want to do to fill the freezer now was that a spot where you can shoot a buck but you had to shoot a doe first or uh not technically it's it's unlimited doe type tags you can you can buy as many as you want um that area i think there's like forty thousand still remaining yeah they they, they probably put a limit of sixty thousand for that area and they never ever get bought out you can shoot one buck in pennsylvania no matter what but the dough there are, are unlimited. So you don't have to like earn a buck or do anything like that for the special regs. They used to not have buck hunting down there. It was two weeks dough only. They just the last couple of years opened it up where you can shoot a buck as well. And I'll tell you what, John, there's been some giants getting taken. That early, early season. Yeah, some giants. Some private land down there where people are shooting some really big deer. It's, it's impressive what you get around those city areas oh suburban stuff yeah suburban stuff that's just as good as a midwest farm in iowa as far as and, i'm concerned because yeah, there's no gun hunting there it's archery only yep the most archery part, archery only it's just yeah. hard to get access in areas like that correct yeah if you own the land though and you have it and you're the one that's hunting it by yourself man i you can 
<laughs> I've seen biggest deer in my life walking <laughs> through a neighborhood feeding on shrubs on November 8th. <laughs> biggest buck I've ever seen in my life. Most rural neighborhood. The only biggest wood lot was like a, an acre. I Crazy, can, man. I can remember. I know Tom Nelson really good. He was uh, he was host of American Archery for years. I think he still is, actually. And uh, he did a, he worked for Wolf Creek Productions. American Archery was with Wolf Creek Productions. And the owner of Wolf Creek Productions had a suburban TV show for a while. And I'm going back probably 15 years. And they, I think, leased 40 acres inside, just, just on the edge of the Columbus city limits, just outside Columbus city limits. And it was a farm and they paid a lot of money for it, but they took uh, three booners off that 40 acres the first year. Cause they're pulling deer out of suburban, basically yeah. suburban Columbus where there was no hunting. They're right on that yep. end. Yeah. And in Ohio, you can bait. I mean, I don't, right. I've never hunted over bait or food plots in my life, but in Ohio, you can nope. bait. Yeah, yeah, you can, you can, I couldn't imagine, I couldn't imagine. That is so wild, dude, <laughs> man. I mean, we have, we have big pieces here, we have small pieces here, uh, there ain't no booners. <laughs> <laughs> Michigan's in the yeah, same Very boat. few. We got yep. about 650,000 gun hunters and 340,000 bow hunters, and we take, Michigan kills about five to 10 booners a year yeah everybody combined i mean that's like nothing got an iowa help just in one county they'll kill 30 or 40 in a county yeah 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 we got a lot of them around here too and i think i saw half of them last saturday so <laughs> booners or hunters hunters, uh, hunters. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. wasn't booners <laughs> yeah but you PA. take a state yeah, you take a state like Pennsylvania and, and our, our hunting numbers and you say, hey, only this area you can hunt for two weeks. And you got all these Pennsylvania hunters itching to get out there. And you take <laughs> yeah, these. Because small, it's oh, by the, the way, <laughs> yeah, and this area has like three public lands that are pretty small and everybody packs into them. <laughs> <laughs> blow right by where all the deer are. By yeah, yeah. And they're, and they're sitting at their trucks by the time they get out. The, the deer are feeding at the trucks. <laughs> oh, that that <laughs> is such great. an interesting story because I've had that happen to me many times. In fact, this one dude, he was going down to Illinois in public land and he was always, he always applied, it was 16,000 acres and everything prior to their gun season was an application. So you had to apply and get drawn for a November, like November 1 through 7 and then November 8 through 15. You had to get drawn. Okay. And he's always telling me, he went three years in a row, he got drawn. And he was Panther Creek. That's the name of the public land. And he was saying, you know, God, every year there's, you know, a couple hundred and eighty inches get shot on this public land. And I'm saying, yeah, but that's 16,000 acres and how many hundreds of hunters are out there? And so he said, well, there's a lot of hunters on it, but two 180 inches plus every year and i said well have you ever thought of going down there in december you know like right because in december as soon as the gun season is over you can go down there carte blanche you don't have to get drawn or anything because you can go and go hunting so i okay. said why don't you uh, wait and wait until you're going to get a good snowfall you know keep an eye on your weather reports and then if you see you're going to get a decent snow call the park ranger because these places in Illinois, this is actually a state park where campers and lakes and, you know, during the summer, it's very active. 
and call the park ranger and see if they got the snow and then go down there the very next day. That way you're looking at deer sign that's made 24 hours and deer are on a bedding feeding route at that time in December. And then just then you're scouting and you're looking at sign that was made within the last 24 hours. So you're looking at routine sign. And he ended up killing a big eight point literally 50 yards behind the ranger's position. Like, <laughs> nobody ever would have thought of hunting during November, right before there's yeah. snow on the ground. There's a huge runway skirting the backside of the ranger station because nobody ever thought of hunting that close to the ranger station. And he yep. shot that is so funny. Yep. Yeah. Oh man, awesome. what a good tactic too. Like really yeah. thinking about it. Yeah, we may have talked about that. I don't know how long ago that was. We may have talked about that on the last episode because it, it, when you bring that up, it reminds me of when I was in Illinois the first year. No, the second year I think I was ever in Illinois, I did the same thing. There was a giant, well, not a giant for for here, giant like one fifty ish, one forty ish, right? Good, a really buck. good buck. buck yeah, yeah, giant buck. We'll yeah. we'll go with that. And the ranger was a good buddy of ours, and he kept telling him, you know, he's betting right behind the station where you can't hunt. It's a no hunting. He said he's there every single day, and everybody's after him. So I went 10 steps past the no hunting onto the hunting. And sure enough, he skirted right in that no hunting zone, right past me twice in the same trip. And one week he chased those into the no hunting, bred them in there, and then went around the backside onto, onto private land. He <laughs> it was, never it, it was a routine. He no. never stepped on the public side. Um, nope. Nope. Never did this it. I might've been on the, on the private too i don't know but i know he shot him yeah it's it's crazy i mean i'm obviously probably not the same place but it was funny the same scenario you know a little tiny bit of no hunting all these acres are hunting but that little tiny bit and that's where that big buck was living and that's how he got that big they know where they don't get wow man yeah it's crazy full circle though back to this public land in 2b Austin and I, like some of our earliest hunts together, I remember us using John Eberhart tactics. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah, I do. We went in. Deep. That's how we found this spot in all reality. I mean, that was the first steps to finding this doe killer spot, which I won't say, but yeah, three years ago, I almost shot a really big buck there. But um, we were in there and I remember us, we were over top of acorns, right? in some really heavy, thick bedding. It didn't work out for us, but I'll tell you what, that was so much fun to... <laughs> To put our John Eberhart, uh, you know, to work. We I learned a lot out. about I'm that piece. I'm curious if you had acorns and bedding, why, what did not work out? Well, we come to find out that that whole place is bedding and acorns. So we oh. just probably weren't <laughs> on the, the acorns yeah. and, and thick thick cover. I mean, we, we, I, we thought we were in it. And it could have just been bad night, bad conditions. Maybe our wind was swirling a little bit too much. Um, we were kind of caught in a, like a more or less like a, an opening in the area where I think our wind was just kind of doing one of these around yeah. in circle through there. And I, I I'm I'm guessing that's why we weren't successful that night, but man, it was, uh, that was fun. You, you those, gotta, those early season hunts like that, we learned a lot and we've learned, yeah. we've continued to learn since then, but those were ones that I can remember being like really, really into because we were trying to start new tactics and we were trying to uh -huh. learn and we were trying to just really get it done. And it was, uh, it was pretty wild. It was this, <laughs> it was the stepping stone moment though, to like going just past there a little bit farther and yeah. finding this yeah. spot and then finding the next, you know, and then 
now to a point where we're pretty comfortable with where, you know, what the deer are doing and trying to figure them out. And it's, it's like I said, two, oh, go ahead. But I was going to say just that, you know, two or three years ago, I was in there and I was about to climb my tree. And as I was hooking into it, uh, about a 130 to 140 inch buck come, you know, one of the first days of season comes trotting right past me at 30 yards. I never got a shot. It was too thick. But if I had been up my tree, uh, you know, I had a really good opportunity and I just literally buckled into it and, and, uh, he come through. So, but you know, it, it almost worked, almost worked. You I, know? I just posted on the video, YouTube video. I posted last Friday, which is on right now, a scenario, very similar to what you're talking about, where these guys were, I found tree stands on public land where they were set up in a sea of oaks. I mean, there's, 20, 30 acres of oaks. And, you know, when you're in something like that, where there's oaks everywhere, like you were just talking about, you know, you don't have a destination location. You're just hoping right. of all these trees, they go by the one you're in. Exactly. So whenever I talk about hunting oaks or apple trees, I'm always talking about finding isolated, isolated white oaks or isolated apple trees or, you know, isolated sign where you that is a destination spot. They don't have a sea of the same food that they, you know, can go to at any time where the odds of them coming by yours are pretty skinny. Yeah. Which it sounds like that's what you guys kind of ran into. Yep. Yep. That's exactly it. And we, by the time we continue to push forward and found the other area, I've come to find, you know, even we were talking on video chat the other day, back and forth as I was heading to the property just yesterday. You know, and I was asking him, you know, there's some, there's some white oaks, I think real close to it. I'm going to kind of just scout my way in this time because I was getting in the habit of just going to the same spot that we went last year and had success. Well, as I got in there, I was coming to find that the acorns weren't there. I mean, that was not the destination tree anymore. So I pushed closer to bedding, found the one that had acorns on it. Um, and sure enough, I, I shot two doe under that tree, the same tree. Right. I mean, they were, they were eight steps apart from when That's I awesome. arrowed the first one and the second one. I love yeah. it. Can I ask you, were the trees last year red oaks and the ones this year white oaks? 100%, yes. Mm -hmm. okay. yep. last the same, we're seeing the same thing. Last, yep. last year, red oak acorns were pretty prevalent. This year, reds don't have them where I'm at and whites do. So Yeah, yeah whites are really heavy this year. And for some reason, I feel like the whites are dropping exceptionally early this year. I feel like it was... A month and a half ago, I feel like I was telling everybody that I know. I was like, dude, white oaks are dropping right now. My mom's driveway is covered in them. Yeah. Yep. Totally, totally agree. Yep. My two videos ago was about white oaks, and I was showing the white oak acorns up in the trees and my locations and entry and exit routes and stuff. So, yeah, the white yeah, oaks, yeah. and they prefer whites over reds if they have oh, the yeah. Oak. Sure. Um, but yeah, that scenario you said, that's a perfect example where last year you, you know, you could have went to that tree and just hunted because it was good last year without having the foresight to say, well, there's no acorns here. I got to look for right. a spot with acorns. Yeah. Yep. So you found a different destination spot. Yeah. And it, and it was only another 50 yards, 60 yeah. yards just past it, you know, but it, that's You'd have been I, just out of the game yeah, though. I would have been just out of reach. Absolutely. Yeah. That's awesome. So just pushing that much farther. Yeah. It was, it was awesome, but I, it, man, I, I love it. It's that time of year. You know, I'm getting all, all giddy. That's <laughs> so cool when you go in and you freelance and you find a tree and you jump up in it because it has all the destination stuff. Everything is right there. And 
sure there was deer droppings on the ground and you tag out two, two does. That's awesome, man. Yeah. Yeah. Appreciate it. Definitely. I had a blast doing it too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Idea. I was, you got to drag them out. Of course, if you're close <laughs> to the parking lot, you didn't have to drag them very far and you're a big guy anyway. <laughs> yeah, uh, I did. I had to drag them both out. Yep, one at a time. <laughs> yeah, the FedEx guy watched you do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he did. He caught me. He dang near caught me loading them into my truck on the side of the road. <laughs> so you didn't have a package for him or anything? <laughs> no, go. no. It's funny because that the house right there. He was literally the delivering a package up to the house right on the edge of private and public and i'm coming out right on the edge of private and public and there he was i'm like you gotta be kidding me it's like 8 30 at night what is he doing out here <laughs> i'm trying to be discreet i don't want to give up my spot you know i'm hiding behind bushes i'm running through you know <laughs> oh you're learning good <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's right that's right no it was it was really good but man i uh i want to i want to flip the script a little bit on you john and maybe just we're gonna run through this little uh we started kind of like um i don't know what do you, what do you, what are we calling those like series i don't want to call this they're like a mini series i, yeah. I would say something yeah. similar we, we started a little deer slayer mini series last year where we bring in people on, we kind of have like they build their deer hunter resume and it, and it's, it's taken a pretty big, we've had a lot of requests to bring it back. So I figure why not? We got Eberhard on. We got requests for Eberhard, right? We got requests for deer slayer series. Yeah. So we're going to mix them together. So cool. like awesome. the, the, yeah, it, it, it should be fun. Now, unfortunately you pretty much answered about 90% of these. So this should be pretty quick. <laughs> I'll skip the ones you've already touched on. <laughs> But to begin the, the Deer Slayer series, uh, you're from Michigan. You hunt Michigan. Okay. Well, that's kind of the background that we've already started. We've already announced that you hunt all public land or free ask by permission land. So the public versus private talk, that's already been described as well. Can you describe a little bit of the terrain type that you hunt? Uh, you know, right there around Michigan, your bread and butter. What's your, what's your terrain? Or what you prefer. Yeah. On the public lands that I hunt, almost everything is swamp. So almost okay. everything on public land, I'm hunting during the rut phases, pre-rut and rut. You know, I save my so my spots for that. But I'm typically back in the swamps where I postseason scouted them. Um, I always, 100% of the time, I, I'd say 90% of the time, not 100%. When I'm on public land, I have to use waders or hip boots or a canoe or a boat to access my spot. I, if I can walk standing up to a location in Michigan on public land, I don't care if there's a hundred scrapes and 5,000 rubs, I won't hunt that spot because it's easy access and other hunters will mess it up. So there may be a lot of sign there, but if there's a mature buck using it during season, the sign that he's leaving, is going to be done after dark. So to me, if it doesn't have the security cover requirements, I'm not going to set up on it. And it has to be back in an area where I've left most of my competition behind by carrying waders and crossing creeks and rivers or going through marshes and stuff like that to access. Because that's where they push the deer to. You know, and those deer on public lands are usually pushed back into those areas way before season because everybody's in their preseason scouting and setting up, you know, preseason location prep. So those mature bucks that I'm trying to kill, they're already back in that junk before season even opens. 
So that's where I have to hunt on public land. It's relatively flat. Michigan's a relatively flat state until you get up into northern Michigan. And then when I'm hunting private, I've got one private spot in central Michigan, and it's relatively flat in its ag. It's primarily ag. I'd say 80% of its ag, and the rest has got a little swamp, got a little bit of timber. It's got some funnels, pinched funnels between two crop fields. Um, it's got a cattail marsh on it. And then the one in southern Michigan, which is two and a half hours from my house, that is, a, he owns, I think, about 100 acres. But he only lets me hunt in the swamp. I'm the only hunter. He's got like six guys that hunt on his property, but it's very sparingly. They don't hunt there a lot. And he lets me hunt in the swamp. I'm the only hunter he lets go in the swamp because of my scent control. He knows I can go in the swamp and hunt on an all-day sit in the swamp with a very early before daylight entry and an after-dark exit without spooking deer. You know, because when you're in a bedding area, which that is, you're always during the course of the day going to have deer downwind. So he knows they're not going to win me and spook and become more nocturnal than they already are. So pretty much everything I do is heavy security cover oriented where I either have to go beyond the heavy security cover, beyond the river, beyond the creek, through some security cover. And then there may be a little bit of open timber back in this past the security cover where I could hunt, let's say there's an oak tree or, you know, like you were talking about, an oak tree back in the bedding area after I've already crossed a river or a creek or something. And then I'll set up at that because that's going to be a destination location in the bedding area, if you follow what I'm saying. So, Definitely. So I'm going in, anytime I'm hunting in those bedding areas, it's going to be not always, but 90% of the time it's going to be during pre-rut or during peak rut prior to November 15th which is our gun opener, I'm going to be in my tree a minimum of an hour and a half before daylight and settled in. And I'm not going to leave until a half an hour after dark because I want to be in there before the deer transitions into the bedding area. And I don't want to leave until about a half hour after dark where deer have gotten up and left the bedding area. So I'm not spooking anything with my entries and exits. Because anytime you're hunting in bedding areas, you have to commit during rut phases to an all-day set, in my opinion. Because otherwise, after a morning hunt, you'd spook deer with your exit, or during an evening hunt, you'd spook deer in the bedding area with your entry. So now, early season, like this next week, because our season opens October 1, this Saturday, everything is going to be food-based, natural feeding location oriented. So I've got cameras at three apple trees. I've got about 40 to 50 locations prepped every year before season. I'll probably hunt 10 to 15 of them max because based on food production, you know, does the trees have acorns or the apple trees have apples or the scrape areas that I set up on during postseason active, you know, because that changes due to crop rotations and mass and fruit production. So early season, everything is at food-based, natural food-based locations. So oaks along the edge of, like I mentioned to you guys earlier, standing corn or an apple tree along the edge or just 40, 50 yards inside the timber from a standing cornfield, um, or possibly find a primary scrape area along a standing cornfield. As soon as the corn is picked, those locations are worthless to me because the bucks I want to kill, if it's a, an oak tree on the edge of a standing cornfield, he's not going to come to that spot during daylight hours once the corn's picked because he's too vulnerable, it's too open on the one side. 
Yeah. Um, that was a terrific answer. Yeah, excellent. I'm, <laughs> I'm going to pick that apart a little bit too, because as you were kind of talking, I was coming up with questions and, and jotting those down. So when you're going back in, um, you know, your, your core area where you hunt with the swamps and the marshes and you're kind of back in there, are you seeing a lot of sign being laid down by mature bucks in those small areas is, uh, or is it more that those are like their bedding home where they're bedding in there, they own it. They don't have to lay a whole lot of sign down in there. Or are you seeing a lot of sign like rubs, scrapes, that kind of thing? You rarely see yeah. scrapes in bedding areas. So back in the bedding areas I'm talking about, it's pretty low ground. A lot of times it's marshy and they never lay scrapes in the muddy areas. And Typically, when you see scrape areas, it's always going to be where there's no activity. So most scrape areas are going to be based around feeding locations. You know, that's why you'll see scrapes. If you got an apple tree or an oak tree dropping acorns and there's only, let's say, let's say there's two oak trees along a, a quarter mile edge of standing corn and they're dropping acorns, odds are really good that there's going to be scrapes prior to October 1 at one of, one of those two oaks, or if there's an apple tree just inside the edge of a standing cornfield and it's dropping apples because there's no activity, odds are it's going to have scrapes there. So primary scrape areas are 100% based around doe activity. So when bucks get back into the swamps, does don't want to bet around bucks. You know, they will keep their distance from bucks because the bucks bother them. But <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They chase them and yeah. they them especially the subordinate bucks. So they keep their distance from the bucks. So the bucks have no reason to lay scrapes down back in the swamps. Now, do they rub back in the swamps? Absolutely. If you see tag alders and red brush, uh, little pine trees, yeah, they're going to be trashed out. But do I go back in there looking for sign? No, I do not. I, I go right. back in during postseason into the swamps and I look for the most runway signs, you know, where there's a lot of runways. And I pick a tree in the middle of that is where I can cover as much of those runways as possible. And that's one thing about hunting in a swamp. Scent control is very critical because 50% of the deer you see over a period of time are going to be downwind of you. You know, because there's no rhyme or reason. They're just chasing does, you know, during the during the peak rut, they're actually in the bedding areas pushing does. You know, they'll breed them for it and then 20, they'll lay down with them for 20 minutes. They'll get up and breed them again and the doe will run 40 or 50 yards before he lets the buck back on him to breed her again. So they're just moving around in there a lot. So, and there's no rhyme or reason to anything. They're not following any routine. He's just keeping her confined in the bedding area and do it during her estrus cycle. So, you know, 50% of the deer are going to be downwind. So scent control is a big, big deal when you're hunting the interior of the swamp. Um, makes makes a ton of sense. It's not as big as along the edge. It's not as big of a deal because you can actually pay attention to the wind. Because I paid attention to the wind for thirty five years, and then the last twenty I haven't. Um, but I don't remember the question. Did I answer it? You did. You <laughs> did. But I, did. I'm going to follow up on it because yeah. you bring up the, you you just transition perfect into my next question. I know you know you are well known for hunting high way up there sometimes but in a swamp i know even our swamps that we hunt or a lot of them a lot of those trees you get one they're not they're not straight trees they're real wonky trees they're crazy trees you may not be able to get high into a lot of them does that affect how you climb the trees in the swamp or are you still finding trees you can get kind of high up in 
or are you just taking what you can get, get the best cover possible, and you're setting up to shoot that spot? If there is a, if there's a really good spot and there is not an adequate tree and there's not an adequate place where I can hunt from the ground because there's just too much brush too high, mm -hmm. I, I won't hunt that. I'll try okay. to find a place where there's a tree because if there's a tree and I can only get up at 18 feet and it's a solo tree, which in swamps, you see that a lot, you know, dead oh, yeah. tree, there's a tree here and there's a tree over there. I mean, your odds in Michigan or in PA on public land of getting in a tree 18 feet off the ground that's this big around and not getting picked is pretty close to zero. You're going to yeah. get picked as soon as you make a movement. So I don't want to waste my time. I would rather go find a huntable tree where I've got some security cover up there. They can hide behind the tree. I can move around the tree. Um, so there are times I wish trees were in specific spots, but they're not. Um, and I've shot deer many times on on the ground where I've actually built a ground blind out of natural deadfalls or built a ground blind in cattails, made bee lanes. You know, I always would make a bee, like if I'm I'm in a cattails here and let's say there's runway 15 yards away and it's just being beat to death, I'll always make bee runways. So I've got a visual runway and a shooting runway because if they if you only have one runway to uh or one shooting lane to a runway the odds of a deer going into that runway and you picking up your bow and drawing it and getting a shot before he goes through your lane are not very you know you, the odds of that happening are really high so you always have to have a visual lane and then you prep and get your bow up when he goes through that and get ready to shoot him in the second lane. so when i'm hunting yeah. on the ground i always make v v routes I've got a visual and then a shooting lane, but um, typically I like, I love being in trees. You know, a lot of people say, well, you hunt so high in trees that the sun's not a big deal. That's BS, you know, because yeah. I've hunted, I've hunted high, not on pot, but I've hunted high in trees for a while. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I used to get winded all the time before I had a set. Yeah. That's because it's from all the pot. That's why you're getting winded. <laughs> there you go. And there's been a lot of times in trees, like if, I, if there's a spruce tree or a pine tree in a swamp, which is not that uncommon, they do happen. You know, I've, I've shot deer in swamps and I'm only 12 feet off the ground and I've shot them right. in six yards. So, Feel invisible in those things, man. So the scent control has to be, has to be perfect. Yeah. I mean, and I was, yeah. when you're in a tree that, that, high off the ground you know i was set up i didn't cut a whole big ring in the tree for a saddle where i could go around the tree 360 i just cut it cut the tree on opening because i was shooting at one specific route one specific runway so that's the right. only runway i was worried about so i'm just setting up and i just cut a little section out of the tree you know so nice. i can have a shooting one and yep. yeah it was on public and yes i do occasionally cut stuff on public land it was probably oh, already dead anyway. <laughs> it was probably already dead. Uh, it was dead. It fell. It <laughs> fell off that tree. I know how that works. They fall off all the time around here. Yeah. Well, typically I'm so far back in, I am not even concerned about somebody coming back and playing. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I mean, in all reality, some of the some of those, you know, it, like not being able to treat use spurs and different things, the different regulations we have, they really just don't make much sense. Um, you know, but I understand it because there's a lot of people out there that would be out there with chainsaws if yeah, you let right. them they would and break. they'd be cutting 
10 feet wide lanes, a hundred feet long, you know, or hundred yards long. And that would be, then they'd build a, a shack on it and that would be the rifle stand, right? <laughs> that would happen. And I have talked to BNR officers and typically they have told me, you know, yeah, if we see somebody and they, they cut a little thin shooting lane or they cut a couple branches out of a tree, we, they don't do anything. But the law has to be there in case somebody does something and it's severe, they can do something about it. Absolutely. Definitely. Absolutely. 100%. <laughs> that was excellent. So that, that definitely plays into the same place when we, you know, hunt swamps and whatnot. Now, the interesting part is, and I, I know we've talked about this before on a prior podcast, and I've heard you talk about a lot, you, you're in early, early, and you're out late. Both of those equate to you moving in the dark and navigating a swamp. I want to know how you make that possible, because I know just from the one moment when this guy shot a buck and it ran so deep into that damn swamp <laughs> that navigating out of there that night was a nightmare. It was a <laughs> nightmare. John, well, I, this guy came and helped me. It was probably like eight o'clock. We got back to the truck with the deer. It was like one thirty in the morning. <laughs> <laughs> I marked my lanes. I have, in fact, I. It have, was terrible. I have a YouTube video, probably three or four ago, on marking routes, and then I have a YouTube video the week prior to the marking routes of using headlamps versus flashlights. Because I think that's a big deal. So many people use headlamps that are four or five hundred lumens and they scoop the hell out of deer. Um, so I I always mark my routes back into the swamps. Uh, and usually when I'm in there postseason scouting and I'm prepping a location, that's when I mark my routes. And okay. I actually will actually cut routes. I will actually cut routes with my saw. And many times, cutting an entry and an exit route back into the swamp takes way longer than prepping a tree. I mean, there's a lot of work involved in doing that stuff, you know? No doubt. This video that's coming out this Thursday, I'm mentioning that as well. I'm showing markers, how far they reflect after dark uh, versus using onyx. Because with onyx, you can't follow a trail with an onyx in the dark. If it's going through heavy vegetation, it's just not that accurate. You get a few feet off your off of your entry route, then you're going probably stepping over logs and breaking more branches and making more noise. And you're getting anxious. And so you're overheating. When you got markers, you're physically following a very defined route. And if I want to, and this will be in the video as well, if I need to make a right-hand turn, let's say I'm going straight through a swamp and, and I'm not using tacks, because in a swamp, you can't stick tacks in vegetation. You have to use those bread tie markers. Yeah. So I use bread ties a lot and you have to cut the vegetation way back around it if you're doing it during post season because the stuff's going to grow. Usually I'm putting it on brush and stuff. Um, but anyway, when I'm coming into those areas in the dark, if I have to take, let's say I'm going a straight line for four tacks or for four bread marker markers, and then I need to take a 45 degree to the right, I'll take a somehow or another I'll find something where I can actually put something an orange marker if it's if I'm using tacks on trees I'll put a white tack or a brown tack and then I'll put an orange tack 45 degrees up above it to the right that lets me know if my brown tacks or my white tacks are my main tacks as soon as I see that orange marker 45 degrees I know I got to make a 45 degree turn so you know my my routes are always and when I 
kill a deer and it goes and it dies back in a swamp, you know, it runs, let's say, 100 yards back in an area where I don't have it marked, I'm just blood trailing a deer. What I will do is I'll mark it on my onyx, but then I'll also, I always carry reflective markers in my backpack. I'll put reflective markers all around the area. So when I'm coming back in the dark, it's just real easy with a flashlight. When you get close, you can find the exact location where the deer's are. Okay. That's great. Yeah. I mean, it, it makes sense. We, we've used tacks plenty. Um, you know, sometimes I'm afraid to use them because someone else will find them and take them back to my spot and end up, you know, hunting in your spot. If, that, you, that... if you buy HME Brown tax, it's in the video coming out this Thursday. If you buy the HME Brown tax, I guarantee you, you put that in a tree, you can't see it at 15 yards. You Good. literally yeah, can't. Now, if you, use a, if you use a white tack, you'll see it visually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yep. But at, at night, you can see the brown reflections of the tack, but uh, in the daytime, you cannot see that brown tack. There, I have that a, visual. Yeah, the there is there's a lot of spots where I've tacked them before and in the daylight I come back in there, you know, the next morning before dark or whatever it is, you know, the next time I'm in there in dark and you turn that light on and you're basically at the airport. There are so many <laughs> <Yeah>. tacks. <Yeah. laughs> there are so many directions. Yeah. You're like, okay, which tacks look the newest? Those are probably mine. <laughs> I never use white tax on public land ever, or orange or yeah, orange yeah. Uh, flagging tape or orange stick-on markers. Everything, everything on public land is either green or brown. They don't make the green tax anymore, but Ameristep used to make a green reflective tax, and I've got several thousand of them. When they went out of business, I bought a lot. I got a lot of everything. If I use something, I probably. I probably reflective marked 500 to 1,000 entry and exit routes in my life. So I use that stuff a lot. I think it's funny. The last time we had you on, you know, saddle hunting was starting to become like a little bit more of a resurgence again. Sure. And, you know, Tether was coming out and you had all these other manufacturers starting to come out. And me and Charles had been talking about it for a while. I was still very, very married to a, a lightweight stand and sticks. And it's right after we talked and we, I mean, we had a conversation for hours last time. Uh, I made a saddle. Oh, wow. And that year I killed my first buck out of the saddle, which was awesome. And then Charles, he was trying to talk me into it. I just kind of came out of nowhere and made the saddle and then boom, there it was. And now we're both like deep oh yeah I'll, I'll never go i'll never go anything else <laughs> no, no I was way just, just talking to a kid today about it um he was saying that you know he was interested in it and he he wanted to do it and you know kind of what my thoughts were i said well i've been doing it for four or five years now and i don't see myself ever going back no. away from saddle hunting i mean the benefits of it are just unbelievable you know same same as you're saying about the benefits of scent lock and using properly and not worrying about the wind just as much being mobile and being able to get yourself in the right spot and put yourself in the area for success with a saddle, it, it plays hand in hand, you know, with, with overall success. I think you'd agree. Like you said, how many, I mean, your numbers speak for themselves with how many bucks you've killed out of a saddle. It, it's just incredible. Those were the two biggest things that have changed my kill percentages was initially going into a saddle in 1981 and then Scentlock in 1997. 
those were the two two biggest game changers hands down the saddle the saddle has so many advantages over any kind of a metal standard it's it's doing yeah. it an injustice even to even mention the two in the same sentence in my opinion <laughs> <laughs> uh, and i'm kind of impressed that he made his own saddle and shot a deer on it that's pretty damn cool when you love meat, you find a way to take it with you everywhere you go, especially when it comes to getting outdoors. That's why Smithfield has so many high-quality, delicious meats that are perfect for any outdoor adventure. Whether the park you're headed to is a national park or just the one down the street, like Smithfield marinated roasted garlic and cracked black pepper fresh pork tenderloin, expertly seasoned for on-the-go flavor, or prime fresh smoked ham that'll have you building on-the-go sandwiches packed with flavor. Smithfield Extra Meaty Back Ribs bring hand-selected perfection to the backyard. And Smithfield Anytime Favorites will help you take the ham you savor to the places you love. From diced ham that'll turn any picnic into an outdoor feast, to hickory smoked boneless ham steaks that are the perfect cap to any hike. The great outdoors just got greater with Smithfield. For the love of meat. Yeah, he did. He, he manufactured his own saddle shot a deer out of it uh, a week later gave it to me i wore it for the first time being in a saddle hunted out of it for uh about 10 days i went to ohio with it stole it from him there and i could have shot a bunch of deer but i was just after a buck and i didn't didn't see one of the ones i was after so um more or less i just decided to uh to pass on some deer and, and to be able to just swing around the tree and let them walk right past you like that was the most amazing thing to me, like the light bulb moment, but man, this is not only really cool. Wow. The tactic is super, super useful. Yeah. It's really kind of cool. Uh, I can remember when I first got into it, I was hunting out of a tree sling. That was the first one. And then trophy line came out in the, either the late nineties, the late 1990s or early two thousands. And I designed a saddle for them. It was called the ambush saddle which was a mesh saddle. Um, I didn't use it. I'm a two panel saddle guy. I have my own signature saddle out there through tethered. Um, but, you know, that was their number one selling saddle. And then Trophy Line went out of business and then they finally came back. But before they came back, tethered kind of took over the reins in 2018 and brought the saddle hunting thing back into fruition. Uh, because they have great marketing on social media. And now there's lots of great companies out there. You got Cruiser and you got Trophy Lines back and you got Latitude and you got Tethered. And you mentioned another one. I mean, there's there's quite a few really good saddles out there. And, and it's personal. It's kind of like a bow, you know, whatever fits you the best. So there's lots of options. It's a growing category for sure. Yep. Without a doubt. And what's nice about that is the different amount of options bring, you know, prices down and lets people, opens up the market to more people, gets more people involved, allows more people to enjoy what we've been, you know, enjoying um, and, and to get that benefit. And I've pretty much have brought a bunch of people to the dark side. So, oh, oh yeah, <laughs> oh, yeah, it's, it's multiple year now, more and more just keep, once they put it on, they see the benefits of it. They go, wow, this is actually really comfortable. It's, you know, I could see why you've been hunting out of this thing. <laughs> the light weight. I mean, my goodness, like you said, don't even mention that giant piece of metal that they clank through the woods all the time. We still got a couple friends that do it. Yeah, but they're on the cusp and 
I don't know, man. I feel like I'm counting on my toes now how many we got going on. Oh, goodness. <laughs> it, it's, well, you know, like I said, one after another. You, you know, I was just out doing my speed tours and put out a bunch of cell cameras. Uh, like I mentioned to you guys before we started, I've got about 15 cameras out and probably 10 of them are cell cams or Exodus cameras, which are phenomenal cameras. Mm -hmm. And they're in locations and I was doing videos while I was doing, putting out the cameras and doing these speed tours. And um, it was kind of interesting because on a couple of my locations, they're where oak trees, white oaks, white oaks this year seem to have acorns, reds don't. And so these were where white oaks were budding up next to standing corn. So I, I did a video where I'm actually, you know, because a lot of people when they walk to a tree that's on a tree line, they usually walk down the edge of the field. In other words, they would literally walk down the edge of the standing corn where you got timber to one side, standing corn to the other. Well, I was doing my video with my end because uh, that entry and exit um, YouTube video is posting this Thursday that I did. And okay. basically when I'm, I don't ever walk down the edge of the field when it's standing corn, or even if I'm, even if I've got a place, let's say a tree that's a hundred yards into the timber off of a, a hay field or an alfalfa field or a bean field, I never walk the field edge because there's typically does or subordinate bucks or something bedding along the edges. And when you walk the field edge, you spook deer. And when they run back into the bedding area, back where you're going to be in their hunting back on the edge, they spook other deer and especially a mature buck. If he sees deer spooking going by him, he's not going to get up and come that direction before dark. No, He knows they just spook from there. So on this video, I show actually walking way out into the field or walking about 10 rows into the corn where I'm going parallel with the tree line, but I'm 10 rows into the corn for my entry. And then I can still see the trees over to the side. And when I get to the spot where I need to cut to that tree or go in the woods, that's when I cut back to the corn and go straight to the tree or straight into the woods. I'm not spooking anything walking down the edge. I'll tell you what, marking entry and XRL is a big deal. It's yeah. a big deal. The type of headlamps you use is a big deal. You know, when I'm on public lands and mm -hmm. especially during the free rut and rut phases, you know, I'm back, I'm way back in. Okay. So I've crossed a river, I've crossed a creek, I've used a canoe, but still when the foliage is down during the rut phases, I can see for a mile. If somebody parks a mile away and they get out with these big, huge headlamps, man, I can see that thing shining all over because your head's always turning you're looking down. I use a, a AAA flashlight find my way into my entrance and if and i've had deer many 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 times where people i can see their headlamps a half a mile away and they either park their car and i can see them coming in and even though they're not coming back to where i'm at because they don't have the stuff to cross the river they're spooking deer across the river and they're running by me and the guys that are coming in with those headlamps they don't even know it those deer see those bright yeah. headlamps and anybody that says they don't doesn't know what they're talking about. And I've watched all the TV guys. Almost everybody on YouTube uses headlamps. And you're spooking deer with your entries without even knowing it. I feel like yeah. I'm preaching. Uh, <laughs> I, I mean, I, I definitely use that. No, no, no. Good. It's good. I definitely use a headlamp. Um, I don't know if it makes a difference or not. My headlamp has a green mode. Yeah, And I use the green mode. It's really dim. 
you know, I can see what I'm doing. If I need that light when I'm hanging, you know, my sticks and stuff in the dark, it, it's perfectly fine, but it, it is really dim. And that's all I use. I mean, the only time that my actual headlamp hand light comes on is when I'm tracking a deer. Yes, that's, that's fine. Because if you're using a green, green or a red lens, that cuts down on the lumens big time. I mean, yeah, you, still have a yep. beam, you still have a beam and a bright spot and deer are, tend to be colorblind. So if you took something red and put it in a tree, they might not see that. But still with a red light, there is an actual beam. If you know right. what I'm saying. But yeah, yeah, as soon as you put any color over top of a white light, you're cutting the lumens down big time. And that's what you yeah. got to cut those lumens. Yeah. Makes sense. I think another point that you mentioned that was a very good tactic is marking your way out is somewhat oh, underrated. You know, everybody typically marks their way in, but they don't mark their way out. And I'm guilty for it myself. I won't lie to you because I'm typically sneaking in, but then, you know, on the way out, I'm like, I believe this is the way. And then I kind of turn around and look back to make sure my tax are still there to see if I'm going the right direction. <laughs> And when they're not, panic mode might set in every once in a while. The phone comes out. Where am I? <laughs> Onyx. <laughs> yep. <laughs> well, I always mark my exit routes, and, and it's very, very common for me to have a different entry route than an exit route. Because if I'm if I'm going to hunt, let's say, let's say I'm going to hunt 50, 100 yards inside of a timber line from a crop field. Okay. I'm going to walk on an evening hunt. I'm going to walk at least hundred to 200 yards out into the crop field. If it's a short crop field, I'm going to walk way away from the tree line and I'm going to cut in directly to the tree and then go into the timber where I need to go. But I'm not going to exit out through that open area because there's likely going to be deer out there feeding. So I'm going to actually, my exit route is going to be back through the timber back to my vehicle. So I'm, I'm going to exit a half an hour after dark where the deer have came out into the crop field. And now I'm going through the timber where they're not, but yet I enter through the crop field where they're not on my evening entry to my tree. So it's very right. common for me to have a different entry than that. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like that's something that nobody really thinks about. I know I'm guilty of coming in and out the same way. Um, typically my access is, is pretty clean, but you know, there are always those times where your access is clean, but you're entry or your uh your exit, your exit is it yep. even if it is the same route you know perfect example right there your access and exit might be totally different mm -hmm. that's something people overlook all the time and that's something i'm going to actually look into moving forward you always want to enter or exit where you have the least possibility of spooking it yeah 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 come i mean sometimes it's like you come to the end of their hunt and you're just like you know what i didn't kill anything I'm just going to get the heck out of here as quickly as possible, right? That's what people want straight out of here. I'm going to run out of here. I'm going to spook every deer out of the property. And I don't care because I'm not hunting. It's dark, blah, blah, blah. And I'll tell you what, you do that enough times, you see a lot less deer the next several times you're That's in that area. 100%. 100%. Yep. yep. No doubt about it. <laughs> We're just going to have to get a mud boat or something for the one property because there's pretty much only one way in and out. There is pretty much only one way in and out if you want to get through there. Unless we go swimming or snorkel gear or something. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I. Yeah. And <laughs> no, and that is, that's just one, one single property where it's like, right. we do the best we can. We sneak out the best we can. 
do minimal, minimal damage. Um, but you know, you're trying to only hunt it on the right when, yeah. when it's right. I mean, right. it's just, if, if the wind's bad in there, it's like you were saying, I mean, in, in a swamp, the wind can be pretty, oh, pretty gnarly. Yeah. And if your scent control regimen isn't a hundred percent on point, you're, I mean, they're going to get your win. Mm -hmm. So we really try and be exceptionally low impact on those spots. And that's just, sometimes it's really hard. I mean, you're, you might get in really clean with your, with your access, but your exit just might be. Yeah. Swamps, swamps, <laughs> uh, because they're flat, but there's trees in there and, you know, wind hits trees and it, it, it defracts off trees. And so it gets swirls and stuff. Yeah, swamps are a bitch and saddles are a bitch. Your sides are rigid where you're dealing with thermals and swirling mm -hmm. winds. Yep. Back before I was really proficient with sunlock, back in the mid 80s, I just totally quit hunting in saddles or in, you know, like saddles between hills or on sides of ridges because I would almost always get busted. So I just totally quit hunting those types of areas. You know, even though there might have been great sign there, I, the wind changes every 10 minutes. So yep. there was no reason for me to even set up there. Probably spook a deer I want to kill. You know, I was hoping I could kill him maybe someplace else. And, you know, there was times when I had to pay attention to the wind where I didn't have the days off work during the rut phases where the wind was right for me to hunt my best rut phase location. So I never got to hunt them. You know, that happens to everybody. If you have to play the wind, there's lots of times you just can't hunt your best spots because the wind's not right during the days you have off. So yeah, hating yeah. the wind is a huge, huge advantage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> 100%. So I think I'm going to know the answer to these, but if you were to continue to build that resume, your hunting resume, John, and we got to the point where you're putting your strengths, right? Like any good resume you have, that. where's your strengths? Why, what makes you best for the job? If you're going to use the same definition and take that into the hunting world, what would you say maybe two or three points are like your strongest point of what makes you a successful hunter? Uh, just like work, it's my work ethic. I've, I've hunted with quite a few pretty decent, what I thought was pretty decent bow hunters. Um, and none of them had the same work ethic as I do. I'm, when people have hunted with me, they call me a deer Nazi because I'm a prick when I'm hunting, because I expect everything to be just regimented, just right. And they can't usually follow that procedure. They're just not regimented, the type of regimented people to do that. So I'm, I'm a prick to deer hunt. And I usually hunt by myself because of that, because I don't want other people messing up my stuff. Um, my strengths are, I'm not afraid to go back into the junk. Everything is security cover oriented. Um, my strength is also, I know the seasonal and daily timing for every single location I prep. You know, a lot of people just prep locations and then they cart launch hunt them. So you may have a location that's beautiful for an evening sit and you go in there in the morning and spook deer feeding at that spot with your morning entry and screw that up for evenings. So I know the daily timing on every location that I prep and I know the seasonal timing. Some, lo some locations are early season locations and they're worthless once the rut phases roll around because the apples are gone or the acorns are gone or the field, the corn is dead. And that, so those trees along that edge are no longer any good because there's no security cover to security cover. So my seasonal timing and my daily timing is very, very good. I don't think a lot of people pay attention to that. Anytime you have multiple locations, you should know this location's best hunted during the pre-rut or during early season, or it's strictly a morning spot, or it's strictly an evening spot, 
for because it's in back in a bedding area, it's strictly an all day sit spot during the rut phases. Knowing when and where to hunt what is a big, big deal. I'm really good at that. And I'm really good at prepping locations. When I take my kids out of uh, state, I prep all of our locations. I don't trust them to do it, even though they're really good hunters. And <laughs> I just want to, we all hunt out of a saddle and I want to prep everything. I want to know that the steps are around the tree correctly. So, you know, when I'm moving around the tree, I don't have to look down and see my steps when I'm moving around the tree. Um, I don't know. And I'm, I'm just disciplined. I'm disciplined. You know, I can remember uh, when I first took my, one of my boys out to Kansas and I said, I'm leaving the house. You know, I rent a house. So I said, I'm, we're leaving it. I'm leaving at five minutes to five. And I said, and if you're not ready, I'm leaving. And he got up and he was drinking coffee and he smoked at the time. He doesn't smoke now. And uh, he wasn't ready. And I just freaking left. I mean, I'm a prick when I'm hunting. Really. <laughs> <laughs> and people, you know, and I'm also, the scent control thing is a big deal because I've, I won't go hunting with anybody if they don't have a good scent control regimen because I don't want them screwing up the area. Obviously, on public land, you're going to have people screwing shit up. That's why I go way back in where the deer typically have been pushed to. And I'm, you know, and I have a good scent control regimen, but I would never take somebody without a good scent control regimen back into those areas because they'd screw up the whole place. Um, I like it. No, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you know, the, what I really loved about that is that you, you really like bought in and answered it almost like an, like a interview question, right? Like it was a true resume. Like I love that yeah. the way you dug in, I, you can truly tell the passion and you know, what really makes you tick, what makes you successful. I mean, obviously your numbers speak for themselves, everything you've done and everything you've taught other people. I'm sure there's a million success stories out there of people that said, I heard Eberhardt say this and I did it and I killed a deer, yeah. you know, but well, I get that, uh, a, lot. I I get that a lot and I'm proud of that. that. That makes me feel so good when somebody else gets it done with my, supposedly my methods, but you know what? Yeah. I can only put information out there. The person listening to what I'm trying to possibly teach them has to have a similar work ethic to put it into place and make it work. And yeah, I know lots of hunters that have done that. They're really good hunters that don't pay attention to wind. Um, you know, they they know the seasonal daily timing for all of their all of their locations. And I, I love it. I just I absolutely love that, you know, I can help people be like that. But you have to be a detail-oriented guy to do it. I'm a very detail-oriented guy to do it. And if you're not detail-oriented, there's a lot of things I do that you 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 just physically couldn't do. And I can usually tell by looking at somebody's vehicle or the way they're dressed or the way they speak uh, or the way they hang around at a campfire if they're detail-oriented. I mean, I've been a sales rep all my life and, um, you know, you just learn to read people. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, what's funny about that? We told, I told that story earlier, how Austin and I, we tried the Eberhardt tactics and we weren't successful that one time. Right. But what's beautiful about that is we continue to use and continue to learn in that area to become successful. Like you said, you can only teach them so much. You can only give so much advice. If you're going to just try it one time in the deer world, 
like you're talking about hunting an animal that is unpredictable yes. and it doesn't yeah. work. If you're going to give up after one try because it didn't work, you're never going to be as successful as you would like to be because you have to continue to have a little bit of grit, a little bit of work ethic, like you mentioned, a little bit of discipline to continue to do those things, put yourselves in the best case scenario. It's like playing blackjack, right? You can play by the house rules, the better your odds and make the same call every single time. Sometimes you're going to lose money. Sometimes you're going to make money. It's the same way in the whitetail world. Yep. I, I've got something I could interject to that that would fit perfectly. Um, when I look at my stats from November 1 through November 14th, because uh, our gun season opens November 15th, in those 14-day period, I've killed 20 book bucks in Michigan. So of those 20 book bucks that I shot in Michigan during that 14-day period, seven of them were shot between 11 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So that's 35%. 35% of the bucks were shot in the middle of the day. Less than 8% of my time spent on stand during those 14 days over those years was between 11 and 3. So I killed 35% of the bucks during that time frame in 8% of my sits on as far as time spent on stand. Because most of the times I'm just going out and I'm hunting a morning hunt or an evening sit. So, so to tell people you know, like to try all day sits, all day sits are a pain. I mean, you're sitting there, you're changing your clothes three or four times during the course of the day. You got your clothes on early in the morning and then you take the clothes off as it's getting warmer in the middle of the day and you put it back on as it gets colder in the evenings. And in the sun, you know, if it's a sunny day in the middle of the day, it just beat, it just beats you to death. And to try and stay attentive during a full day sit, it's a pain. So so it's very easy for somebody to say, well, John does this or, or Dan Infall does this or this guy does this and I'm going to try it and you try it once or twice and it doesn't work and you give up on it. Yeah, that, yeah that's ridiculous. You've got to stay regimented on things yep. that are going to work and they will work for you at some point. Um, you, you just have to stick with it because I've, I've done that with guys on that midday period. Uh, this one dude, he bought one of my books and I'm in, I'm working an in-store, which is basically, I'm in a store on a Saturday, uh, helping them sell stuff. And this was prior to deer season. And this dude comes in and he's looking at some lot of clothes and I'm talking to him and he said, yeah, I killed two bucks last year. And he did not know who I was. He had no clue who I was. He said, I bought this damn book. It's called Boeing Pressured White Tails. And it's talk, talking about hunting during the middle of the day. He said, so he, this guy owned his own private property. So he said, I've got this bedding area back in the middle of my property. It's seven acres. So I went back there and I got in a tree in the morning, you know, because he, he said, the guy said to sit all day and I'm sitting in this spot and it's like noon. And I called my buddy, I texted my buddy and I said, this is BS. I'm not seeing anything. This is the first time he sat all day. Very first time he's ever done. It. He said, this is BS. I'm going to sit until one o'clock and then I'm leaving. Because he's bored. Because you don't see a lot of deer in the middle of the day. <laughs> and <laughs> at 12.30, and he, oh, I forgot this part. He had seven bucks on his property, and two of them were pretty decent. So it's like 12.30, 
and he texts his buddy and he says, ah, I think I'm gonna just leave early, I'm gonna leave. And he said, I think I'll sit maybe 10 more minutes. So as soon as he put his phone in his pocket, which I don't believe in texting, I stand. All of a sudden, one of those small bucks come by. And he, this is his guy, this guy's property. So he's seen all 70 bucks, saw one of those smaller bucks come by. And it was followed by another one. And then it was followed by another one. And finally, the fifth one came by and they're getting bigger each time. You know, they're, they're <laughs> kind of coming down this route through the swamp in, in their pecking order. And he ended up shooting the sixth one because it was like a 130, which for Michigan is a ultra booner. And he shot that buck. And then he, that deer took off running and he's got a little pond back in this bedding. So he gut shot it. So he called his buddy, said, I can't believe it. I shot this buck. I shot one of those two big bucks. And so they got the book and I've got a chapter in there on recovering white-tailed deer, bullshot deer. And it says, if there's gut shot deer, you know, they will try to lay in water because it soothes the wound. The cold water soothes the wound. Well, they ended up finding that buck in the pond. It died in the pond. So they got that out. He went back the next day and he shot the other biggest, the other bigger buck, which was the seventh big buck. He shot both of them in the middle of the day, gut shot both of them. They both died in five. And after he was, he was all done, because I knew he read my, I knew it was my book he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I wrote that book. He said, yeah, right. And I said, I wrote that book. My name, I am John Eberhardt. And he looked at me and then, because I got my picture in there with a lot of deer. And he, he was a big guy like you guys. He just grabbed me and he owned a funeral home in Hastings, Michigan. And he hugged me. I thought he was going to squeeze the life out of me. But I mean, it was such <laughs> an exhilarating feeling for me to sit there and listen to this guy's story, knowing it was influenced by me and then telling him at the end it was awesome. <laughs> two days in a row, two biggest bucks on his property, both about one o'clock in the yeah. quarter. Of the <laughs> I thought that was just really cool. <laughs> yeah. that, that is unreal, man. That is so funny. <laughs> That's beautiful. I mean, that you're talking about just a, an amazing story of gratification where you knew the whole time he was talking about your book and all of a sudden yeah. it's like that could have, first off, it could have went one way or the other, right? As I'm sure <laughs> as he's telling that story, you're sitting there thinking, I'm either going to tell him I wrote that book or I'm not at the end of this story. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end, when he recovered both deer, I thought that was good. And it wasn't about me. It was just look, listening to the excitement level. In Absolutely. And telling me, you know, I thought this was bullshit sitting there in the middle of the day and it's hot out and I'm, I got shit to do at home, you know, the whole dig. And he stayed there, you know, and, and he got it done. And that, he was so excited and that just made my day. It was just awesome. absolutely. Yeah. That, <laughs> that was, was excellent, John. Excellent. That's tremendous. Well, Austin, uh, that's pretty much it for the deer slayer portion. I know we're running up on time as well. Uh, but did you, did you want to bring anything else in? I know you had a couple more points you wanted to touch on. I kind of wanted to touch on, on, on that, you know, the public land etiquette thing, but I don't, I don't know if we need to, this has been so good so far that I don't, don't bring it down now. Huh? I don't know if I want to bring it down with that. You know what I mean? well, in my opinion, uh, 
you know, there's guys that hunt public land that do have some etiquette, but for the most part, they don't because there's just so many of them. Most of the public lands where I'm hunting, you know, there's 40 bow hunters in a section. Not, I'm not yeah. saying they're there every day, 40 people in a 640 acre section, every 640 acres, but there's 40, 50 people that hunt it during the course of the year. And, uh, you know, intrusions are to be expected. I, oh, I, for sure. That's why you got to go back where other people are not. Because if you're hunting in the same areas as everybody else and you're hunting similar to everybody else, there's no reason for you to expect different results than anybody else. You've got to do things outside of the norm. To be successful at bow hunting and try and target mature bucks, you have to do things outside of the norm. And the more heavily pressured the area you, you live in and hunt in is, the more you have to do things outside of the norm. You know, because if you're hunting managed property, you're going to kill your big bucks no matter what the hell you do. For the most part, you're going to get them in. Uh, but when you're hunting heavily pressured property, yeah, you may slop a good buck in every 15 or 20 years just out of happenstance. But to do it on a consistent basis, you have to do things different than everybody else. You have to work harder than everybody else, or you should not expect different results. That yeah. makes total sense. I couldn't agree anymore. I will say that, uh, you know, I had a very pleasant experience at that game lens yesterday with a couple of people pulling in right after me. Uh, the one kid was probably a little too friendly as he was showing me some of his trail cam pictures and telling me where he was hunting on some really big deer. <laughs> Was it on public? Uh, was it public? Yeah. Really? Yeah. yeah, I was in a public parking spot and he was telling me all about about no, but I mean was the spot last he year. was seeing the big deer on public as well. Yeah. Oh wow. Yeah. I know. And I was like, either this guy's just pulling my chain. I don't know how to take this. I've never had this happen before where someone pulls out the fence or show me trail cameras from the property that we're in the parking lot of and then telling me the general direction which I already know of yeah. and where these deer are. And I'm like, I'm not telling him I know that, but I already know what he's talking about. I just couldn't believe he was legitimately showing me were the they, proof. Were the pictures after dark or in the daytime? They were mostly all in dark. Yeah. Okay. Cause you could be, yeah. that's one thing about hunting public land. You know, you may go and hunt some public land, put up some cameras in, you know, spots, let's say Oaks out in open timber and stuff. And you might get some yeah. nighttime pictures, but it's totally a waste of your time to hunt there in the day, you know. Yeah, both. definitely. Because they're yep. not there in the daytime. <laughs> right. Absolutely. 100%. Yeah, I would say 90% of the pictures were at nighttime, but it was still, I mean, it kind of blew my mind that he was showing me these pictures of the deer and, and his buddy shot a real nice one in there last year. He shot about a 115 to 120 inch buck that's, on that public land. Land deer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, really good buck. And I was, uh, you know, very friendly. Much? Is that killed? Had that killed killed much as as far as deer or not? Him personally, no. Yeah. Um, from what I was taking, uh, that he does not kill a whole lot of deer. But apparently, he did have an opportunity on a very large deer that he was after in there. And then uh, a lot of guys run their dogs in there. And he said he was full draw on this buck. It was behind a big tree. All that was out was his neck and his head, and all he could hear was jingle, 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 jingle. And here comes the dog. <laughs> <laughs> and there goes the deer. <laughs> what were they running dogs? What were they running rabbits or they they run a lot of practice dogs on rabbits and squirrels in that area. It's it's a huge, hugely well-known thing that if you park in that parking lot, there are two people with vans that run dogs consistently um through there and they they run them all year long. So 
Do we tell John the story? Maybe off air. <laughs> yeah, we'll tell him off air. <laughs> well, let me, I mean, let me interject something real quick on what you just said about that kid because it's getting to the point sure. nowadays where younger guys and even a lot of middle-aged guys that don't kill a lot, but they want to be part of the excitement. So they've got nice pictures of deer on cameras and that's that's their way of acting intermingling with somebody that's a more serious hunter is by showing them pictures of pictures of deer because that's all they've got so right. they just want to interact with people and because that's all they've got that they have to do yeah. if you know what i'm saying i do yeah and i mean kudos to the kid super nice kid right yeah, i mean talk yes. to me right out i mean i was getting ready trying to put my stuff together he jumps out still in his work clothes throws his bow in the back of his truck and just whips his phone out right off the bat and just starts showing me <laughs> stuff. <laughs> he was you all know, in yeah he was all in but i you know i always try to make that conversation the point i guess i was getting to is i always try to create a conversation with people in the parking lot it can go a long ways typically oh absolutely you know, stay out of each other's hair a little bit, kind of communicate, and it should be amicable. You know, the guys that just rush in, jump out of their car, grab their bow, and run into the woods when there's three other cars parked there. You know, that guy, I don't want to be that guy no. personally, but I get it. You know, they're they're trying to do something. They're, they're either in a hurry because they got a far ways to go. You know, they're trying to hide a spot, whatever, but um, well, let yeah. me ask. Let me ask you a question because did you have signage on your vehicle about your podcast and stuff? So did he know who you were? I I assume what happened was, and that's a great question because I left that part out. I had I did have the podcast thing on my truck, but he also had a bunch of stickers on his truck, and I recognized one. One was the PA Bow Hunting Group, which is two really close friends of ours that run a pretty decent size. Uh, social media page here in Pennsylvania they have a pretty good followage and I saw this sticker and I went hey you have a PA bow and this is like right out the gate after we've like kind of met each other I said oh you have a PA bow hunting sticker no way he's like oh yeah yeah and I said those are my boys like those are those are my like I hang out with those guys they were just down here you know this weekend and yeah, I hunted with that, Adam literally Saturday yeah he hunted with them Saturday I was there Monday and I mean, after I said that, I, you could have swore I was his best friend at that yeah, point. We were hunting buddies. He was trying to and I, yep. I think that's what it was. I, I mentioned no, the stickers on his truck and, uh, he made that connection. And, yep. and after that, it was like trail cam picture. Trail cam picture. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, Holy man. <laughs> you want to hear a good one? I last, this happened last year. I was in a dollar store down by a place I was hunting on private. And so I was getting a pop on my way out at the dollar store. And there was this guy in there, young kid, and he was in camo. And he noticed me. He knew who I was. And he's, John Eberhard, I want to get a, can I get a picture with you? Blah, blah, blah. So we go outside and we get it. This, his buddy took a picture of us and he couldn't stand it. He did the same thing. He pulled out his cell camera and he showed me this picture, this big buck. And he told me exactly where it was. Mm -hmm. So this was during season. This is halfway into season. And I rarely prep new locations during season. I mean, I just don't do it. But I did go over there, and there was this swamp, and he said this swamp was where it was. And I went in there, and I actually just freelanced in there, set up in a tree, and rattled in, not the buck he showed me, but a really nice A-point and shot it. So, nice. And I've got a tree, <laughs> awesome. I got a tree prepped 
this year because that bigger buck made it through. Somebody else had a picture of it. Wow. So, <laughs> but I went in there the first, first sit and rattled in an eight point in that betting area. <laughs> yeah. I've never run in there. That's my before. favorite. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've heard stories. I've listened to millions and millions of hours of podcasts where other people do the same thing. People slip up, they post it here, they do this. And the social media thing drives me nuts when people post cameras, trail camera pictures. I have a deer, like I was mentioning at the beginning of this podcast, near my work, that is the biggest buck I've ever seen in my life. I have never shared those pictures on social media. That was like four years ago, five years. That deer is probably long gone and dead, but I will not share that picture <laughs> of that buck on social media. Sorry. That's a wise, <laughs> wise man. Yeah, I mean, there, there's definitely etiquette going full circle but at some point you got to cut back a little bit yeah you want to maintain any kind of you know out of sight out of mind yep sanctuary of whatever sorts that you may be holding on to i have lost because it won't be there long i have lost permission on several pieces of property by killing a big deer and having the property owner find out you know yeah. I, I had on this one piece 20 acres i killed three really nice bucks in the third one I shot it in the middle of the day, and while I was dragging it out, it was only 20 acres. There was three other guys hunting this 20, but I was hunting by the road. I was literally 50 yards off of the main road, just like you were talking about by that public spot. And they were all set up back in the back where the timber butted up to another uh, crop field. So I'm dragging this buck out in the middle of the day, and I never thought these other guys, any of them would be coming in to hunt. But as I'm dragging it across the two track, going back to the guy's house, there was a house in the middle of his 20. He didn't hunt, but he's the one that gave everybody permission. Uh, this guy pulled in and I didn't have time to drag it off to the side or anything. And he saw me with it. And uh, then I had to show it to the property owner and um, the property owner's daughter was getting married and her fiance was a bow hunter and I was out. Oh man. Yep. Yep. Oh, that's happened to me many times over the years. I, mean, I shouldn't <laughs> yep. say many, but probably a half a dozen times. As soon as yeah. as soon as you kill a big buck and the property owner knows about it, he's gonna show it to all of his friends and relatives. And then if he's got nephews or kids or or brothers or whatever that want to hunt there, well, they're relatives. You're out and they're in. I mean, that's just yep. the normal yep. out of sight, out yep. of mind. Yeah. And the reality of the situation is when you're in a state like Michigan or Pennsylvania with the number of hunters we know or that we have, that property owner has somebody that he knows oh, yeah. or is related yeah. to that is a hunter Absolutely. <laughs> of some sort. So do you even well, get he was that a permission? Teacher, so you know he knew a lot of kids. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. It's so funny. I was literally just going to say that. I was yeah. like, you read my mind. Oh, man. That's beautiful, John. Beautiful. That is so funny. Well, John, I want to keep you on the line right after this, but okay. um, we're getting close on time here. Why don't you go ahead and tell everybody where they can find you, where they can find your 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 YouTube videos, you know, okay. how they can get a hold of you, and if they have any questions, all that fun stuff. Okay. Um, my YouTube channel is Eberhard Outdoors, and I usually post – I've got 73 videos out there so far in the last year and a half. And I've uh, got one coming out Thursday. The last four or five are really, really good. There's a lot of good information on it that's current for right now. Um, so that's Eberhard Outdoors. I do whitetail workshops. I do them in March and April. 
uh, during postseason, which is when most people should do their postseason scouting and location prep. Those are two-day events. I only do four of them a year, but they're all in uh, March and April. And I've written three books, Bow Hunting Pressured Whitetails, Precision Bow Hunting, and Bow Hunting the Eberhardt Way. Uh, you can get them on Amazon or on my website at deer-john.net. And I write articles for deer and deer hunting, uh, bow hunter. Um, and my wife thinks I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> and that's about all I, totally, I got. <laughs> I totally forgot about the play on the words. Yeah, Deer, it's so good. Yeah. dash or hyphen john dot net that's beautiful john you are the man oh thank you <laughs> oh we really appreciate it we honestly do we appreciate you coming back on and chatting with always us i had a i had a blast man i had a blast i always have fun with these little spontaneous podcasts too they're kind of fun i yeah. love it i love it keep you on your toes yes <laughs> <laughs> well, I get to reminisce a little bit about things from the past. Sure. I, love I had it. One, one strange thing that people asked me to do, because I have, since the 80s, every time I've killed a good, a good buck, I've written a story about it. Now, Ooh, I, sucked, I like that. I sucked at English in high school. I almost failed high school because I sucked at English. Now I've written three books, and I've written hundreds of hunting articles. So I always write an article or a kill story you know, where the wind and the property, the layout, why I did this, why I did that. So even though it's a kill story, there's a lot of information in there that people can take away from it. And over the years, I've written 70 or 80 of these. So they've asked me to do these audio videos, which I thought was really, really weird. So basically, I'm just carte blanche about once a month. I'm putting an audio video where I'm reading the article on a black screen and then during the course of me reading this article in this audio video there's just a picture of the dead deer with me with the dead deer on the screen but a lot of people like to listen to it like on their way to work and stuff and they're usually pretty long and they're 30 40 minutes each so they're pretty in wow. depth, very detail oriented where can people find these that's on my youtube channel that's on your, I love that. Excellent. Yeah. You can listen to I didn't to notice those before. Yeah. And uh, yeah, those have been really, I mean, they're not getting a gazillion views. They're getting anywhere from three to 4,000 views in the first, you know, couple weeks. Um, but they're, that's pretty decent for just the, that's audience. pretty, good, that's pretty decent. That's yeah. pretty good. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when you're talking about a video that is just words. Yeah. That's weird. I'm just part. reading it off a text off of yep. here. Yeah, that's impressive. That um, is awesome. I, I mean, that's like a podcast in itself. It really is. Really. Yeah. We'll have to check those out for sure. So yeah. head over to the YouTube channel. Give John some love here. Uh, check out his website. Go to his workshops. I can speak firsthand. The workshops are awesome. Go to those events. If you see them on the calendar, just go. Yeah, John's very personable. Walk up to him, shake his hand. You know, John, we, we really appreciate that. You've basically done that with us over you know, the internet, but you know, we yep. walk up to you, shake your hand. So yep. appreciate Absolutely. You, man. I, I love interacting with fellow, fellow hunters as long as they're not assholes. <laughs> <laughs> and there it is. There are some, and sometimes I can be one, but usually I'm not. I don't see it. You're so sweet. <laughs> uh, not always. <laughs> <laughs> 
Oh, man. So well, thanks for the opportunity, you guys. And hey, everybody out there, good luck this season, man. Wish, wish you the best. Yep. Good luck out there. By the time you're hearing this, a hey, season's coming. Season yeah. Should be tomorrow morning. Yeah. It'll be on Friday. So good luck to everyone out there. You're hitting the woods. Be safe, first and foremost. And uh, hope you all get the buck of a lifetime.